All right. So I have always been fascinated by the topic of memory, the relationship between memory and history, because there's there's like this push-pull thing of what you choose to remember, what you choose to forget, what you want to leave in or outside a frame. You know, as a filmmaker, I'm always looking at the framing of something. And and um, memory is like that. It's it's a very kind of um, non-linear way of of, of, of tracing who we are. And so I'm so happy to have uh, both of my guests here today. I'm going to introduce them first, and then we'll just kick off a discussion on, um, you know, memory and history and link it to the anti-Semitism here in Hawaii. So a lot of heavy, important stuff. So tune in right now. So our first guest is Dr. Daphne Desser, who is an associate professor of English at UH Manoa. Her research and teaching interests include rhetoric, nonfiction, autobiographical writing, Jewish identity, and Holocaust studies. Early in her career, Dr. Desser published work on her great-grandfather, Mordecai Ben-Ami, a writer who immigrated to Tel Aviv in the 1920s. And she has recently published on the memoirs of second and third generation Holocaust survivors and on her mother, a Sabra, born in Tel Aviv in 1937. She's a 2021 recipient of the Schusterman Center's Summer Institute for Israel Studies Fellowships and has been selected as a speaker for Americans and the Holocaust, a touring library exhibition sponsored by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and the American Library Association, which will come to Honolulu early 22, 22 excuse me, great. Her academic writing explores various aspects of identity construction, the negotiation in such diverse writing contexts as memoir, electronic media, computer games, family letters, and the writing classroom, of course. So welcome to uh, KTUH, Dr. Desser. Thank you very much, Tadaraba. And Hebrew for thank you. Thank you, thank you. And also joining us is a graduate student in the social psychology department at UH Manoa, uh, Hannah Pearson, who is studying religion and culture and also a member of the UH Hillel, which I don't know what that is. So Hannah, I'm going to just let you kick off by explaining what that is. Yeah, definitely. So Hillel is an organization um, on college campuses all around the U.S. Uh, I don't think it's, it might be international as well, but I know for sure that it's all around the U.S. Um, it's just sort of an organization for Jewish students to come and um, build that Jewish community, either socially or religiously, depending on the context of the campus. So uh, some schools have specific buildings in place where staff from Hillel will come and help host different Jewish events. But at UH Mono, it's more just a group of Jewish students getting together and celebrating Jewish holidays and having that community since most of us are away from home. I didn't even know that existed at UH. I'm so glad that you brought that to our attention. In fact, I'm going to give a little context to my relationship with Jewish culture is my husband's Jewish from New York. And so, um, you know, I raised my kids. I, I didn't convert, but I try to uphold the Jewish traditions. You know, we have the Hanukkah bush. We do, you know, all the, the high holidays. Um, and I am deeply interested in the connections for people who don't think they're connected. Because I think that... Um, we often think it's not our story, and yet there are so many connections. And so I wanted to kick it off with that and maybe have both of you share a little bit of your uh, Jewish um, heritage or your connection to it and how you approach it in life. Daphne? 
Well, I just wanted to say that Hannah actually met through Hillel, so I am the vice president there, and um, I probably would not have known of Hannah's existence had it not been for Hillel. So one of the other things that Hillel does is just let us find each other, um, and so I'm very grateful that that happened, and I'm so glad that Hannah was able to join us for this podcast. I really wanted a student perspective along with the faculty perspective, so Hannah, thank you so much for being part of this. It's just it's great. Um, my experience is also very different from Hannah's. I think it's one of the other reasons that I wanted Hannah here. So um, I'm first generation American. And so I really do not connect very well with the American Jewish experience. I also didn't spend my teenage years in the United States. I was in Europe. And so I've always felt like when you ask about Jewish identity, my Jewish identity is not going to sound like the typical American Jewish identity. One of the reasons for that is it was very much cloaked in silence. That is, I found out later in life, a characteristic of first-generation Holocaust survivors. So my father escaped the Holocaust when he was a young child. This is not a story that he shared with us. It was not a marker of identity. And in fact, my family, my immediate family, did everything they could to hide that history from us. On my mother's side, he was born uh, in Tel Aviv in 1937 before Israel became a state. Interestingly enough, she also tried to largely hide Jewish identity from my brother and myself when we were growing up. So it was also an era of assimilation. Um, the idea was that you become American and many, many people, refugees from all different cultures and languages can identify with that particular moment in American history when you were supposed to leave culture, language, family and identity behind and become American. So it, we also swept up in that wave of assimilation. Uh, I think in addition to that, something we'll get into later is just the trauma of having to um, leave behind communities that had been destroyed to know on both sides of my family, both on my mother's and father's side, they were uh, one of very few who survived the Holocaust. So many, many relatives, many, many relatives on both sides were killed. And the burden of that, the burden of survival um, the burden of looking back, the burden of carrying that memory was a lot for them to bear. And what they chose to do, which was not unusual for immigrants coming to us, was to put on their children a sort of hope for tomorrow, a focus on America as the sort of the, you know, the American dream where you can survive and succeed no matter what your background, your culture, and all that, and to not look backward and to not feel, and I think this is core to what they were trying to do, to not feel lesser than, um, and certainly not less than human, which is what the Nazis were arguing, um, than any other American or any other human being. And so really, I think their primary concern was that I not grow up traumatized by a sense of Jewish identity. And so I'd like to hand it off to Hannah now, who will give us, I think, a very different understanding of what it's like to grow up a Jewish in the United States, because I think my experience is really not that typical. And, um, and, and so, you know, I always hesitate to speak in terms of anything other than my own experience. Mm. Thank you. Hannah? Yeah, I would say my experience um, growing up in the U.S. as a Jewish person was very different than um, what Dr. Dusser is describing. I think that um, so for me personally, I was born and raised um, in Minnesota, but right on the Minnesota, North Dakota border. And my mom is Jewish, but my dad isn't Jewish. And there are basically no Jewish people in 
North Dakota. It's really? very small, even smaller than here. There are there are more Jewish people that I've met here than there are in my hometown. So I sort of grew up with that disconnect between like myself and the Jewish community, which I think sort of forced me to play a very active role in my Jewish community because if my family didn't do it, who was gonna do it? If there's only 30 families, that's all we really have to sort of continue on these traditions. Um, and my mom and I talk about that a lot actually because my mom is from Brooklyn where everybody's Jewish for the most part. So. Including my husband, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so she had a very different experience growing up where she was just Jewish by virtue of existing and being Jewish. And her family didn't have to do a lot of those things that when she had kids and moved away, she had to start doing those things to sort of like keep the traditions alive. Um, fortunately, I don't have any immediate family that was directly impacted by the Holocaust because all of my family had immigrated here prior to um, World War II, but there was still loads of trauma and anti-Semitism going on um, in the U.S. throughout history that have impacted us um, historically as a family, but also me personally, my personal experiences with anti-Semitism growing up. Mm, okay, so um, yeah, you know, I think about the resilience of, of the Jewish culture and always trying to keep something. And, you know, um, when I when I was living in Hong Kong, there was a very strong uh, Israeli community there. And we became friends with some very close ones. And um, to see that, you know, I know we're going to go back and forth into like collective, um, you know, memory and all and, and just communal kind of thinking. But I just it blows me away how um, some people because of previous traumas or whatever it is, um, brings a sense of just, uh, it's beyond resilience. It, it's a refusal to accept anything less. And a lot of times we criticize, we critique some people for those strengths, right? Like, oh, you know, they're just impossible. But then you look at what maybe brought that to who they become. And I just think it's really interesting. We don't, I think we underestimate or don't think about the connectivity of what history does to us as peoples. Right. Um, and I don't know. I mean, do you with this, how do we start talking about um, how memories are held or how how history is kind of like contained with us if it's been so disjointed from like a, the generation of silence, as you had said, Dr. Desser, you know, where what is that? Where is the bridge happen? Right. Well, in Holocaust studies, we definitely have a break this down according to first, second, third, fourth, now fourth generation. And so the first generation were those who went through the Holocaust. And there within, there's also sort of, there used to be sort of a hierarchy. So were those who were sent to the camps, their labor camps, their concentration camps, their death camps, and then somehow survived. And then those who were hidden and somehow survived. And then lastly, those who escaped. And, and the latter category, those who escaped, were for a very long time within the Jewish community not considered survivors. To somehow complain about having escaped the Holocaust when other people went to the camps and died was just absurd. And so what happened was um, in the effort for that first generation to have that the, the, the huge effort to collect those testimonies, which was very difficult to do because many of them were so traumatized and did not want to look back, um, had sort of psychic reasons, psychological, mental, emotional reasons for resisting giving testimony, for resisting um, 
getting those memories, those were concentrated for a long time just on those who were in the camps. Now Holocaust scholarship is beginning to look at those who were hidden and beginning to understand the trauma that was associated with this kind of um, what we would now call houselessness. I mean, they had a, a sort of a spiritual home, but they had no physical homes and they would go from hiding place to hiding place, children growing up on the streets, not knowing from place to place where they would be. And then finally, the people who my, um, for whom my family, uh, my immediate family, my father was one child escapees. So those who had to leave as children under threat of death. And my father escaped with only his immediate family and the rest of the extended family was killed. So that's sort of the first generation story. What happens just to try to, uh, I, I do this quickly and I'm really kind of trying to get through some major points here, but what happens then is the second generation of which I am one is burdened with telling the story. So, um, and, um, the, and that's just the hallmark is that you'll find that in many cases, in complete contrast to the perception of the outside world and the American Jewish community, Jewish families who were affected by the Holocaust did not speak about the Holocaust, did not teach their children about the Holocaust, is not central to the Jewish identity, and often was a hidden, uh, a hidden marker. And so what happens is the second generation begins to ask questions, begins to wonder, uh, where, why, why don't we know our extended family? Why don't we have pictures of aunts and uncles and grandparents? Where are we actually from? Why don't we connect with the Jewish community? What exactly is going on here? And of course, some even were raised as Christian that it was so traumatic to be Jewish or considered to be such a liability that some chose to raise their um, first generation survivors chose to raise their children as Christians or just not religious at all and not to even tell them that they were Jewish. Sometimes the second generation has to discover even their own Jewish identity. But many, many second generations then are tasked with becoming these amateur historians, the family documentarians, and they go and they find out the stories that the first generation was so reluctant to tell them. So how do you crack that nut though? What, what is that? Oh. Yeah, how do you crack that nut? I mean, I think it's, it's complicated by the fact what Saul Friedlander calls the sort of this deep memory, it's, it's, it's uh, that we will never really be able to access the actual experience of the first generation. It was so traumatic and so difficult to speak of. The horror is so unimaginable, you know, experiments on infants and twins and um, just, you know, the sort of evil run amok, just the, and, and this is really not well understood when people talk about sort of concentration camps or detention camps, they don't understand the extent of the torture and the horror within the, in the, these death camps. It really is unfathomable. Um, and so to ask people to return to that, there is, is very complicated. And at the time, we're talking about the 1940, what, 1946, 47, 48, people didn't necessarily have the psychiatric, psychological, mental sort of resources that we have now to deal with people who've been traumatized. So they were then sent to displaced camps. They then had to immigrate to other places. Um, they did the best they could under those circumstances, um, but some committed suicide within years. Some carry psychic uh, you know, scars for the rest of their lives. And some then passed on those psychic scars onto the second generation, the unresolved trauma 
Um, and, you know, just we're not really in the place to, to parent in a way that is entirely healthy because they were so traumatized by their experience. And it isn't really until I think the third generation now where there's so much better understanding of inherited trauma um, and just the need for storytelling and psychotherapy and all kinds of ways of beginning the healing process. But that wasn't available to the first generation in the same way that we have now available for. Yeah, for so when you mentioned this inherited trauma, um, trauma, you know, it, it makes me think about how simplistic it is to uh, like just make fun of certain ethnic groups saying, oh, you know, Jewish people are so neurotic, you know, you know, everything's everyone's a Woody Allen movie. But then we don't question. And now that you bring that up, it makes me question and, and look at the connections and how how trauma can be embedded, you know, in generations. And I don't know, Hannah, if you have any feelings of this, like how, how do you reckon with um, that kind of social, uh, psych, psychosocial kind of, you know, things that you might potentially have embodied from previous generations? Yeah, definitely. It's something that I've thought about a lot. Um, but I think part of the part of the thing that stands out for me is that we sometimes get on this train of talking about anti-Semitism as if it's over. And we are, we just sort of think like, oh, we have to deal with this historical trauma. We have to deal with our previous generations. But on top of that, we're also facing real examples of anti-Semitism in our everyday lives all around the world that are sort of building upon the trauma that already exists. So we're not only having to rework the historical trauma that our families have gone through, not only from back to World War II, but historically, as far back as Jews have been around, there's this trauma that's built up. Um, and we're also living this everyday trauma on top of it. And I've actually talked to Daphne about this in the past too, but there's seems to be this sort of tendency for a lot of um, Jewish communities, at least the ones that I've existed in, where they don't want to even talk about the current events that are going on that are anti-Semitic towards them. They just want to keep it hush-hush in the same way that a lot of people were keeping things hush-hush back right following the Holocaust. Yeah, but that silence speaks a lot, right? I mean, it's like, why are we keeping it quiet? Why are these uncomfortable conversations pushed under the, the rug consistently throughout um, time? So um, I, I think we've opened up a very kind of a deep look into the, the intergenerational historical context to how we look at um, anti-Semitism. So why don't we take a quick break, take a little breather, um, and people who are listening, if you're just tuning in, we are talking. I'm talking to Dr. Desser and Hannah here about anti-Semitism. We haven't really kind of uh, approached yet, but really more the back the backstory of how we look at um, history and trauma. So um, don't go away. We'll come back and continue. Welcome back. I'm talking to Professor Daphne Desser and Hannah Pearson here. All right, continuing on the heavy issue of Holocaust survivors and, and how we approach this kind of history today. Uh, you know, I just came back from New York. I just wanted to share because I went to visit my daughter who is studying at NYU right now there. Um, and um, Daphne, you were just saying off air about the kind of the potential lack of resonance we have here on island with what's going on with the Jewish culture where it's, you know, it's so prevalent in New York. Um, and so maybe you wanted to kind of give a little context to how to approach this. 
Okay, well, one of the things you said talked about is how in New York it's sort of known that you know everyone everyone who's Jewish is sort of neurotic or has a there's a Woody Allen in the making or something like that. Right. And I just wanted to comment on that because I'd actually read an article written by a psychotherapist who talked about this internalized uh, sense of neuroticism that the Jews can have that they don't historicize it though. And so they will come in with complaints of de depression, anxiety, and not trace that to this historical and cultural trauma. And that was one of these fascinating things that came up um, early for me when I began to sort of look at the effects of um, trauma in my own family. Um, when I first started to deal with that, no, there's no psychotherapist asked me, are you Jewish? Uh, it, it, is anyone in your family a Holocaust survivor? Um, they asked about alcohol, drug use, you know, and eventually uh, my father was diagnosed as, by one therapist as sort of a rageaholic. Um, but it really took years and years and years for myself to sort of figure this out that this was could be easily traced in historical and cultural trauma that he experienced as a child. Um, and so I, mean, I think that that internalized sort of sense that there's something wrong with us, that we are more prone to psychological disturbances or difficulties can be traced to, as Hannah was pointing out, centuries of cultural trauma. In terms of just quickly, you know, you mentioned NYU and I remember um, going to a school here on campus and just talk, being introduced some, to some new parents and someone talking to me about, oh yeah, and then there's always NYU and Boston Blue. And I had actually never heard that before oh. and um, that expression. And so I, I thought, okay, now that's kind of a form of casual anti-Semitism right there, you know? And one of the things that I think is so interesting is then um, because of my background, I think I take this much more personally and much more sort of uh, concerned about it perhaps than most. So I actually eventually called the person up and said, you know, my father survived the Holocaust and a lot of my family didn't. Same thing on my mother's side, um, maybe don't use those terms. <laughs> you know, and I, I think so that sometimes it's a matter of just reaching out and sort of saying, look, I, it's, I, I, it's hard for me to tell you the story. It's hard for you to hear the story. Um, we had a nice long conversation. Um, by the end, we were sort of both in tears. Um, but, you know, it had an impact and I think it also did help my son's experience there at the school to have sort of paved the way for that conversation. Um, so, uh, Hannah, and you, I know you've shared also a little bit with me, maybe you talk a little bit about um, more of the sort of experiences either you've had here in North Dakota, but some of it is just sort of educating people a little bit that those, they, they seem like small things, but when you come from a certain background in history, I think we do feel at some point that we have a responsibility to intervene, a responsibility to explain in the most compassionate sort of non-judgmental way, you know, just sort of say, look, I'm sure uh, if you really understood uh, the history um, and how long anti-Semitism has been with us and how destructive it has been for centuries, you know, you maybe wouldn't use terms like NY Jew and Boston Jew. So I don't know, Hannah, if you want to tell your own story there of something that you had to contend with. You know, we have to interrupt the discourses and, yeah. and, and, and take it upon yourself to do some educating. Yeah, I think that um, happens quite a bit throughout my uh, young life as a Jewish person. I think 
particularly because I grew up where I did. I think that there are a lot of these sort of um, under the rug anti-Semitic things that people don't necessarily know are anti-Semitic. They just were using and had no idea and had absolutely no education on anybody, what it meant to be Jewish or what a Jewish person was. I can, um, I was just reflecting on an example the other day of when I went to, um, there was a local theater company putting on a production of 13, the musical, which is about a like a boy who is having his bar mitzvah and he moves from New York city to a small town in Indiana. And they brought the playwright in to do an interview um, when they opened the show. And I was really excited about this because I was 13, just about to have my bat mitzvah. And I was really pumped that I got to talk to this Jewish playwright about writing this. He was like telling everyone just about my experience in this musical. And I got up to the table and I started talking to him about this. And I overheard some women behind me who'd said, see, I told you some of those people would come out when we had this thing because they just had never, they'd never met a Jewish person. So they, I'm sure had a conversation previously about why are they doing a Jewish show in a place where there's no Jewish people? And it was just shocking to them that there were Jewish people in that town. And there are countless other times that I've been in stores with my mom, whether it's a thrift store or a garage sale or something like that, where I've heard people say that, oh, they're just trying to Jew us down, trying to make the cost lower, constantly just using those little phrases that to them seem like just everyday vocabulary, but to a Jewish person is definitely not not acceptable and is very, very much anti-Semitic. Yeah, and, and to, to be conscious of that, I mean, I think there's, you know, the sensitivity around language. First of all, I don't think we're well-versed enough to sometimes even know, we need to acknowledge our own ignorance to, to cultures. But, you know, I'm thinking of like when Black Lives Matter kind of erupted and th how the tables turned on how we need to reassess how we use language um, can apply here, right? I mean, I don't think that people, in yes, there are the intentional ones, but then there's also times when you don't know what you're saying and what it's implying, right? So I think that's why we're having this conversation now too, is to address that, like you said, anti-Semitism is, is, is alive and kicking. And how do we see it and, and how do we address it and, and by opening up the backstories of the histories, right? Can we talk a little bit about memoir writing? I know we have like limited time, but, you know, um, Dr. Nasser, you had mentioned before, I think it's really fascinating the difference in the way second, third generations um, approach trauma and how it gets re recollected and through writing, um, you know, you think you mentioned that um, the, the first generation tended to be silent and to, you know, as a form of survival and assimilating, you know, it's the same with Chinese, you know, we always had to be like the model citizens because we had to succeed to show everybody that we were not, you know, something else. Um, and then everything gets kind of glossed over and we forget things because we're so focused on the achievement story, right? And that's why I think also Jewish and Chinese cultures have so many similarities. Um, but I'm just wondering in that process and that that's consequential generational um, construction of the past, you know, it is a construction, isn't it? Because it's not their experience. And so how, what gets lost or gets reinterpreted in a for better or for worse way through the form of memoir writing? Right. So uh, what happens is you piece together whatever you can find. So letters, family stories, photos, 
um, and you begin to tell a story and the story is one you know that you craft and the interesting thing is that's then open to interpretation by the different family members so in my case uh, the family story was there was a maid that they had brought over and then almost to Holland because they went from Germany to Holland just sort of one step ahead of the Nazis. It's sort of like the Anne Frank story. And so they're in Amsterdam um, and they're hoping to bypass the Nazis. And of course, they uh, that's not going to work. And actually, Holland had the, one of the highest uh, percentage of Jews who were killed. Is that the Jewish community, the Dutch Jewish community was almost entirely obliterated. Um, but what happens in that moment is they have a maid, and this is where the family story breaks down. Some people say it's from, she was from Czechoslovakia. Some say she was German. So already we don't know. And it took one generation <laughs> for that to get lost. But apparently in some way, this maid was going back to Germany. This is the story and it doesn't completely make sense historically. So I'm still working on this to vote and heard there at the Nazi meetings that Hitler was coming for Holland and to leave. So she came back and she warned my immediate family. And this is also a trope, Eli Rizal also has this, that, the, that there are warnings and often it's a maid or someone who works in the, in the family who ha, that's not Jewish and is saying to this Jewish family, they're connected Jewish family, you need to leave. And in Eli Rizal's night, they don't listen. In my family's case, they listened, they trusted this information and said, okay, we're leaving. This is 1939. The family story is, is they went to the rabbi of Amsterdam and said, this is what we're hearing. And the rabbi of Amsterdam this all, said this, I did find uh, documented in the history books, said, no, come on, you know, just, please, you're going to create a big to do about nothing. You're going to cause unnecessary panic stop spreading these stories it's not going to happen and absolutely refused to take this seriously um and then they left for u-boat um which was then under attack because they were british vessels and so passengers children women were under attack um they were set to leave on a u-boat that then actually was demolished and there were no survivors luckily enough had just um were unable to get passageway for the for my grandfather and my grandmother refused to go with him without him. And so just my that immediate family, grandmother, grandfather, three children got on the U-boat and, and escaped. Um, it's just you know, the bear, hardly anything with them. And the Dutch community that they knew that my father completely identified with just obliterated. Now that story, I did not hear from my father until he was 91. It took that long to get his version of that story. Um, and he just did not ever want to go back and look at that. And in fact, uh, he didn't really raise us very Jewish. And this is another shocking thing to people outside of the community. So Jewish, so back generations and generations, I did my ancestry.com or whatever. There's not even a percentage of anything else. So how, how long, how long does this go back? And yet, and this is, you know, a shocking thing for some Jewish people, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, I was raised in New York and New York at that time was still fairly anti-Semitic. That's how my parents perceived it. And we celebrated Christmas. Wow. We celebrated Easter. And now I understand why my parents had no feeling for those holidays. I'll tell you, those were the weirdest holidays I've ever celebrated. Uh, because they didn't know what they were doing. It meant absolutely nothing to them except survival. 
They felt this is what they needed to do to allow me passageway into New York society as they perceived it. There's also a huge disconnect then because I didn't get the benefit of the Jewish traditions and cultures. I didn't get the benefit of the American Jewish community that I would have benefited from. So all of that I had to find on my own, that history I had to sort of, uh, you know, eventually get from my father, talk to my cousins, um, do the research. It was all a very kind of um, individual journey. And what I found in these second and third generation memoirs, but primarily it, start, it, it begins with second generation, is that it's just the commonality, a sense of disidentification with the surrounding American culture, even the American Jewish community, that the parents don't talk about the family members that were lost. They don't talk about the culture and the language that were lost. There's an extraordinary focus on the future and success for the children. Um, there's almost a denial, really, that anything happened. And <laughs> you think, how can you deny that? But if you're going to survive, sometimes it feels like you have to deny it. And, you know, it also was sort of like no one wanted to hear about this. And people now think, oh, we're so sick of hearing about the Holocaust. But if you come back from this traumatic history and your neighbors are like in the swimming pool and having your barbecues and they're celebrating Thanksgiving and they don't want to hear about, mm. you know, post-world Europe. They don't want to hear about the camps. They don't want to hear about how you've lost all your family members. So you don't speak about it. You try to blend in. And um so that just that sense of isolation and not belonging is, I think, very, very, and that something is off, something is wrong, is really what the second generation grows up with. And it's not until they get to a certain age, I think you have to at least uh, bond through maybe a little bit of middle school and high school before you can even begin to grapple with your family history and culture. Hmm. They begin to think, oh, this is not just me. This is a phenomenon. This is a characteristic of my generation. And what I'm going through is actually a commonly held experience. And then you begin to find a, a sense of belonging in place again. But you have to reestablish your own relationship with Jewish identity and culture and language and history, because that is not really been given to you in the way that a lot of people assume it would be. But it's so painful to, you know, it's so triggering to, to dig into that history so it's like you understand the reason why people push back on it, not just for the neighbors who are celebrating Thanksgiving, but for yourself and for your own personal well-being, right? I mean, because it can be psychologically damaging. And at the same time, you, you know, you, you're reminded to not forget about the Holocaust, right? It is so um, important. And even for people who've never really... Um, you know, it didn't experience it personally in their families. It's like, why is this important for everyone to talk about? If people are still if tuning in right now, we are talking about the the the, the hard the history of, of, of the Holocaust and how we remember it and how we deal with it collectively and individually today. Um, before we take another quick break, I don't know if Hannah, you have anything to say about the how these triggers can affect you personally in your generation and, and, and how you live in Hawaii with the burden of that history that you've kind of also been severed from. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's definitely something that people in my generation still suffer with, whether or not they were, um, like you said, directly as directly impacted by the Holocaust within their immediate families. I think that um, seeing, especially right now, people comparing 
um, vaccination mandates to the Holocaust and having going into town halls wearing um, the yellow stars and saying that this is the same thing as the Holocaust. My dad, I just called my dad yesterday and he said that one, someone he worked with said that if they make me do this at work, they might as well just send me in wearing a yellow star on my sleeve. And that's my, my dad who raised his kids Jewish and had a Jewish wife. Someone said that to my dad. And um, I think that th that the trauma of the Holocaust is still so recent to so many people. And we're sort of just glossing over it like it's not recent and, and then bringing up sort of these historical references that um, maybe don't seem very harmful on the surface, but when you are talking to um, survivors or Jewish people who've been impacted by this in any way, it's it's very traumatic to sort of have that thrown in your face or having it sort of compared to things that are definitely not the same thing. I, I never heard that. And when you say that, it's just, it's horrifying to think that people can relate that. And I can ima only imagine how much that triggers. So thank you for sharing that. And um Let's take a quick another breather and we'll come back and continue our conversation. Thank you. Welcome back. I'm here again with Professor Daphne Desser and Hannah Pearson talking about um, anti-Semitism and, and Holocaust survivors and memoir writings and so much more. So um, before we talk a little bit more about the kind of uh, what's closer to what's around us here in Hawaii and the anti-Semitism that may exist here is, um, Dr. Desi, you mentioned something about the collective, the, you know, the commonality you said of, of the second, third generations that come together with the same kind of experience of the lack of knowledge. Um, and I'm just thinking, you know, it reminds me of that film that I had shared with both of you um, by Anne-Marie Flemings. And what was it called? Uh, a I'm drawing a name. I was a child of the Holocaust survivors. Right. Thank you. So it was a very beautiful uh, short film um, about, and it was based on a book. And so what that filmmaker did was um, she helped her friend um, recreate the story through animation. But, you know, visualizing it is another form of, you know, historicizing something, right? You know, we talk about memoir writing, but I thought I'd throw in this, um, this genre of animation that we don't think about as having the power. Um, and, you know, what's really etched in my mind is one of the earlier images of, you know, the, the images we know of the Holocaust of the piles of bones just to animate something like that. And what that does in that process of a different kind of a technical medium to share something so deep and disturbing um, and how we are maybe, um, is it less painful to see it through animation? I'm not sure. But the idea of this collective, like, it, you know, the story kind of went around this younger generation of and trying to figure out why these older people had to stick together to what is it about that collective place that the older generation could only them understand with each other without even words. Um, and that's something we don't have the younger generation, right? We don't have that experience. So I don't know if both of you want to share a little bit about that kind of idea of, of, of collective socializing that is so deep. Well, I would say that it was fascinating to me is when I finally did find my way into this material, I did meet people who were second and third generation. And they we would all say it's as if we've known each other all our lives and that within a few minutes, we just we could just talk. And so you do finally find your people, I guess, once you can. My husband can look at a newscaster and say, he's Jewish. 
<laughs> and I don't know what it is, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it for so. I mean, what happens is that that history, once you've contended with it, um, for me in particular, just as being a second generation, when I speak with other second generation Holocaust survivors or third generation, we immediately bond, and we bond first over the first generation silence, which almost no one really understands in this experience because there's so much stuff about the Holocaust, and then there's a really interesting conversation that takes place that I want to pick up on some of the things you're talking about, the sort of our story making capabilities and what genre we will use. So part of what happens is when you move into third and even fourth generation is we use the genres that are available to us. So you have Mouse, you know, Art Spiegelman's moving into the graphic novel to tell the story of a second generation Holocaust survivor and also his father's story. And that at the time was hugely controversial. Um, the whole idea of bringing something like the Holocaust that was considered sort of unspokable, that you couldn't speak to it, that you couldn't, you couldn't, you, you shouldn't even sort of sacred ground and to marry that with this graphic novel genre, which at that point was just sort of for, you know, superheroes. Those that that first sort of break with high and low culture was a, such a huge moment. And from then on, we've really had the third and fourth generation now experimenting with different genres and different forms. And so that's really something I talk about a lot in my classes is sort of the, the image oriented storytelling of the, 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 the later generations. And we do talk a lot about the refashioning of the, the Holocaust narrative. So there are examples of like, let's say Inglorious Bastards, that's sort of in a revenge fantasy. You have Defiance, which looks at resistors. And really what you're seeing is a recapturing of that story from the first generation that was very focused on the Jew as, as victim, um, as you know, and you have the emaciated bodies and the, the prison garb and the suffering to the extent that the filmmakers felt that they could put it on film. And that's another thing is that the true horrors of the Holocaust are never actually, you know, brought to, to film or to image. Shifting from that to a sense of the Jewish person as a resistor, the Jewish person as a survivor, and then even in Tarantino, um, his sort of revenge fantasy. So a kind of shifting away from what we call a rhetorical choria, which means the resistance or hesitancy to speak about the Holocaust, a hesitancy to, because of a fear about a lack of authenticity or a lack of knowledge or a lack of ability to meet this, where there's such a high responsibility that Tarantino's film is actually seen as the next marker of kind of this new generation stepping in and saying, we're gonna tell our story about human brutality. We're going to communicate something about the horrors of the Holocaust, but we're breaking the old rules about how we do that. Tarantino's and so, not Jewish, is he? Tarantino, interesting enough, he ended up marrying an Israeli. And oh. is like partially in Israel and raising his son, Leo, I think. In the, um, so in, in perhaps in the Jewish tradition. So eventually he got there now, okay. but you know, I think so, but at the time, I don't know what his connections to Jews them were necessarily, but, um, but he, he, he took some interesting risks that really did create a lot of controversy within the Jewish community, but you will find Holocaust survivors saying, love that movie, love yeah. that movie, because they got to experience a revenge fantasy and they got to see the Nazis just sort of get obliterated and, and the Jew as a fighter and someone who fights back. But and what about the question of who can speak? Like who's allowed to tell that story? That's why I asked if it was Jewish. And I'm, you know, I don't know. I'm surprised you said that the Jewish people thought that film was so, you know, 
Well, I mean, I'll let Hannah speak because this is her generation, but I think, you know, who can speak, you know, the first generation obviously will always have the ultimate authority. And even then, um, what we understand about those stories is they're fractured, they're incomplete because they could not access during their lifetimes the most severe memories that even then we don't know the worst of it because so many of them would not and could not tell us the real horrors. So when you talk about, you know, the access that we would love to have, we don't even get that with the first generation. Um, as each generation must contend with whatever snippets, whatever histories, whatever testimonies are available to them and begin to tell that story with their own genres, their own materials, their own um, family memories, and from their own experience as inheritors of that history and of, the, of that trauma. So I'm gonna hand it off to Tana now and let me, maybe you can talk a little bit about all kinds of interesting that are, things that are going on. You can sort of visit the death camps in, in 3D and they have hmm. holo hologram Holocaust survivors that you can interview. And, you know, we really have stepped into a kind of VR interactive world in terms of representation of the Shoah. And of course, there are questions, and I'm just going to hand it off to Hannah here in terms of who can speak and what genres are appropriate. Yeah, I think that uh, something unique that's sort of starting that I'm noticing as far as genres go um, with my generation specifically is just the sort of surgeons of social media mm -hmm. and being able to share people's experiences, being able to share stories. And I think it's, it's really great that we have um, an outlet like social media to be able to share and communicate with people, to be able to um, connect to other Jewish people all around the world and, and listen to our shared experiences. Um, but I do think that there is also a huge downside, which is that there's just as many instances of anti-Semitism as there are of um, like showing support for the Jewish community on social media. So I think that social media can be a blessing and a curse in that way with um, my generation. And I also was um, thinking back when you're talking about the sort of more interactive ways that people are being educated on the Holocaust these days. I think that um, something that was really impactful for me when I was growing up was when my family went to the Holocaust Museum in DC. And there were a lot of different ways that um, the Holocaust was really portrayed. And two that stood out to me in particular, one was um, when you walked in, you had the opportunity to have a like card that described a person about your age and your gender who had actually been through the Holocaust, either as a survivor or someone who passed in the Holocaust. And you got to sort of learn about their story as you went through the museum. And so it felt a lot more close to home because you were you were physically putting yourself in the shoes of these people as best that you could in the museum. Um, and I think the other one um, that reminded me more of when we were getting at like the cartoon and being portrayed in like a cartoon fashion was um, the section of, of Daniel's story that's in the Holocaust Museum. And it's a section that's specifically dedicated to um, remembering the children who were impacted in the Holocaust. And it's told from the perception of a kid who was going through the Holocaust. So you're walking through and you see his childhood bedroom with yeah, letters written that. on the wall. And yeah, yeah and it's, it's really interesting to sort of see the like child perception, especially because the the people who are surviving now from the Holocaust were those children. So 
um, looking at how that generation has aged at, at this point, that it's interesting to sort of see those experiences in that way. So, you know, so there are these spaces that that do beautiful work in, in bringing, you know, bringing to life this past. But, you know, in reference to the anti-Semitism that's increasingly kind of prevalent around um, the country, you know, and it's all kind of like tied into the whole, um, you know, you know, we're going to go, we have to talk about Trump, we have to talk about like all these movements that have kind of been a part of this push and the Proud Boys and all this very kind of uh, uncomfortable tensions that are here, you know, and we don't like to talk about it, but can we talk about this and how, you know, you both have mentioned throughout our, our talk in the last hour about the presence and the prevalence of it, which a lot of people might refuse or just don't see. So can you tell a little bit about what it is? What are, what are the anti-Semitic um, things going on in, in Hawaii right now and how we can work with this? I'll just take the Proud Boys example and then I'll let Lana, Hannah speak about some of the things that she may have experienced. But Nick Oakes is a pretty famous example, um, unsuccessfully ran for a Republican Senate seat and thankfully didn't win, um, was arrested for being present at the insurrection on January 6th. But many people don't know this because his presence on campus first was known because of an anti-Semitic incident. He went to a Jewish professor's class and the basis of the professor just having a Jewish last name showed up in class with an anti-Semitic image, which is the Keck frog, which maybe not everyone knows, but it's connected to anti-Jewish um, sort of conspiracy theories on HN and social media. And basically just sat there in this professor's class with this ridiculous frog. Um, but you know, what what in the world was he doing? And and I think, you know, we had to contend with that as a community in the moment. The professor really didn't identify with the Jewish community. It was just on the basis of his last name. And it was just a kind of profoundly and immediate example of basic anti-Semitism, sort of like, where do you even begin with something like that? And we did in the moment attempt to address it, um, but look where this guy ended up. I mean, at the Capitol, at the insurrection, you know, so, and it began as a student, you know, we, we first began to see problems with him as a student at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So it is there, I'm not sure in the moment that that many people knew about this, that we spoke about it, we certainly were concerned. So that is one example. The other example I'll quickly give is the sort of anti-Jewish uh, sort of uh, discourses around the anti-vax movement that is also rampant on social media. And if you want to know why Lieutenant Josh Green got called out for being a Jew, <laughs> which he is, happens to be Jewish, um, it's because he dared to mandate vaccines for state workers. And so when the protests arrived at his doorstep, at his family's doorstep, with sirens and blowhorns and posters, on those posters, uh, just apropos of nothing, was written Jew. Um, and so these things still happen. And I think what we're talking about here is just, there is no explaining it. There's no rationality to it. There's no, there's no connection um, on the surface of it, or even under, you know, sort of under the layers of this, to connect the, the Judaism to any of these things. Mm -hmm. So what, there is no explanation other than the lingering effects of centuries of anti-Semitism that you're not just going to get rid of because we we want to get rid of it. So I'm going to hand it off to Hannah now because I know from a student perspective, those are my stories from a faculty perspective. What I 
am privy to and as a sort of community member in Honolulu, but I think you have your own perspective as a student and some of the stories that you've heard from students at UH Manoa, so. Yeah, there's one story in particular that I definitely want to share of um, a situation at UH Manoa that happened this past year, which is um, someone was in class and it was a virtual Zoom class like we've been doing here for the past few years now. And uh, they were they mentioned in the class, I don't know how it came up, but something about uh, about whether or not they spoke other languages and the student put in the chat box that they spoke Hebrew and another student in the class just started bumping farting them in the chat with, oh, you must be Jewish. Are you Jewish? Do you support Israel? And just started harassing them about Israel and Palestine and bringing up all these things, all because one student said that they spoke Hebrew. And I think that that, that tends to bring up a lot of issues on social media as well as just this um, Jewish creators or Jewish individuals sort of being bombarded with um, being told that they have to give their opinion on a conflict that doesn't necessarily even impact them in their everyday lives. And they might not have any personal connection to the situation. And yet, just because they're Jewish, they're automatically being harassed. And um, I always uh, think about, I was talking to my advisor since I study religion and culture about how right now it almost seems like both sides of the political spectrum sort of have it out for Jewish people. And the one side doesn't like Jewish people because they do one thing, but then the other side doesn't like Jewish people for the completely opposite reason. So it always sort of feels like we have this back and forth of not really fitting into the political world. We do want to, yeah, of being Marxist and capitalists, Jews have been, uh, been accused of being both too religious and atheist. Jews have been accused of being both too powerful and powerless. I mean, there's never any reason to it, but there is, um, I think, I mean, we don't assume that racism exists on just one side of the political spectrum. It makes no sense to assume that anti-Semitism exists on one side of the political spectrum. Of course, you're going to see examples of anti-Semitism expressed on both sides or of any sides of any political point of view. But when the articulation is Jews have control over the media, Jews have control over the banking system, which was a graffiti that was just recently found in Honolulu. Mm -hmm. Jews construct the narrative. Jews construct, uh, control Hollywood. Um, the Jews control the narrative about Israel. Uh, Zionism is fascism, which is something that was said during World War II. During World War II, supporters of Hitler we're beginning to make that argument. And for that, that is such an, an old anti-Semitic trope that Zionism is a form of, of, of fascism. That actually predates World War II, but um, was very common within World War II. Um, and so the, whoever thinks that's new, <laughs> they come up with that, needs to do a little reading in history. But uh, the, um, the accusation that somehow the Jewish person is the reason for the political problem on both sides of the political spectrum you will find plenty of historical examples. And we have the Inquisition and the pogroms and all sorts of other uh, historical moments to turn back to of when for completely irrational reasons, the Jew is somehow scapegoated and being targeted for whatever political issue, issues and controversies are at the time. And why we would think that that somehow would disappear and would somehow not sort of somehow come awash ashores and even in Hawaii, you know, because we're not so isolated. It's a globalized culture that we live in. There's a local and the globalized. So we're in a global 
culture, which means a combination of globalized and local, Hawaii cannot be exempt. It, 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 it no longer has a kind of, you know, pass in that area because the culture has been globalized. Um, that this is just going to disappear, or that's not going to happen here, or that's no longer present, is so naive. Yeah. Um, and the, the media perpetuates it. And, you know, as Hannah, you had said, you know, what's being reinforced, but at the same time, giving space for new stories to, to dismantle old stories. And I think we need to kind of grapple, we need to all be kind of critical um, viewers and to really uh, see what's out there and open our eyes and, and sensitivity to each other's histories and to acknowledge that this, as you had mentioned, anti-Semitism exists. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I think we can go on forever about this, but maybe I, we would love to have another go um, with another angle. So I really appreciate maybe some final thoughts from both of you, like a single thought um, that you wanna leave our listeners with today. Well, I guess I would like to say to begin with what you said is that um, part of recovering from trauma, cultural trauma, is to find this commonality, not just from people within your own sort of tribe, but with other people who've experienced cultural trauma. And I see a lot of hope in um, making connections with other cultures who've experienced similar losses through genocide, through war, have histories of um, trauma, Due to refugee status and loss of culture and language and identity that we that we can forge connections and that we need to share what we've learned from our histories with people who are currently grappling with these things because we have learned something um, over centuries of survival that we can i think share and we can learn from other people how they've been able to um, recover from trauma and, and that's the other thing is that um, how do people survive how do, how do they remain resilient? Is that there's also a lot of joy and companionship in finding community and understanding oneself and one's history and one's language and culture. And so that's what didn't get said. But of course, that is what draws us to the Jewish identity, like any other culture, religious, ethnic identity, and regain strength from that. And knowing yourself and your community is a wonderful way to recover from whatever forces are out there that might postulate you as less than human or lesser than. Thank you so much, Professor Dessa. And Hannah? Yeah, I just want to say that I think that um, one thing that I hope people realize listening to this is that unfortunately, uh, anti-Semitism is alive and well, both around the world and locally here in Hawaii. And I hope that people after listening to this can sort of take the time to educate themselves and be more willing to reach out and stand up for communities that might be experiencing this sort of um, attacks or trauma. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you both of you so much for this important conversation and we need to carry it on further. Uh, this is Professor Daphne Desser and Hannah Pierce here at uh, UH Manoa. Thank you so much.